Now, I did a degree in botany, and this before I saw advice that it's supposed to be a subject unsuitable for men. Can I cope? Well, yes, I can cope with studying botany. That is because that opinion about gender suitability was written in 1887 in the journal Science, as you ask. And I saw the reference in Dr Jane Carey's book, Taking to the Field, A History of Australian Women in Science. Now, what was the process like doing research for this book? Was it easy? Was it all the information there? Did you just look things up and everything fell into place? Oh, no, that's not how historical research works. Particularly when you're doing women's history, you have to trawl through lots of archives and stitch together all different pieces of information from different places. So this one was particularly over a longer time frame. I did years of research for this book, definitely. <laughs> and where did you find the best troves? Universities or people's private libraries or what? There was a lot in the university archives. The professors of science, the men, writing to each other about women and about their search for suitable men for their departments was very revealing about how they saw women in the field and the extent of institutional barriers or attitudes. I was quite shocked actually how explicit it was. As I grew up in Europe, in Austria and Britain and various other places, I was quite surprised at the flow of very well qualified scientists from Australia <laughs> and I wondered how that happened. Presumably there was a British tradition of the universities. I think it was um, University of Sydney set up first of all in the mid-19th century and then the others followed. Yes, so the first Australian universities are in the 1850s, but they don't have laboratories. They can't do scientific research. We don't have PhD programs in Australia until after World War II. So if you wanted to be a scientist, you had to go back to Britain or, to a lesser extent, the US in the 20th century, but Britain was the place you had to go. Slightly misled by the fact that two of our oldest institutions scientifically are 1816, the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, and then 1827, the Australian Museum. Yes, so those kinds of institutions were based around collections, gathering knowledge of the newest, new, in inverted commas, Australian continent. And this was seen as vital, not just to scientific knowledge, but to be able to exploit the resources of the new colonial enterprise. And just to pick a, a year from the sky as we sit in, under the blue sky at the University of Wollongong, where you are, 1885, what happened then? Well, that was when the first three Australians graduated with science degrees. Science degrees were very new to Australian universities. And one of those was Edith Emily Dornwall, Australia's first woman science graduate. University of Adelaide. University of Adelaide. Adelaide's very proud of her. They still bring her name up sometimes, Adelaide. South Australia likes to think of itself as very progressive and this is one of their proofs of how progressive South Australia is. It's not doing badly with uh, Nobel Prizes and so on, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a long history of women in science and it goes right back to the very first science degrees that were awarded in Australia. The impression I got from your book is that there were various phases in the beginning, it was well open for women to take part. You know, there was a progressive and experimental history to Australia, and it seemed as if the wars put a block on that. And then things turned round again, and you had times when women flourished, 
and times when it was all switched off. Um, certainly women's position in science in Australia has ebbed and flowed. It's not a, a continuous progression from you know a small number to a large number. There's periods where there's lots, particularly in the early 20th century. During World War II, there were women working in all sorts of areas of science because of course the men were away fighting in the war. But when the war's over, all those men come back and there's schemes that let them go to university for free and a lot of those men decide to do science. So men really take over the field in that post-war period. And did women protest and want to stay? Some did, yes. There's some really interesting archives around the small number of groups that women scientists formed to try and protest. They didn't get paid as much as men. There was a marriage bar. So they, in a lot of institutions, they had to retire when they married. But for the most part, these women were not radicals or rebels in the sense that you might think. They weren't even feminists necessarily. Yeah. We mentioned on the Science Show before one of the most stark examples of that Ruby Payne Scott, because Australia doesn't know presumably that three people, including Ruby, helped invent a whole new science, which is radio astronomy. And she was a mathematical genius at the University of Sydney, and she was discovered to be married. She was indeed discovered to be married. She tried to hide it. She did hide it for a while. And she was allowed to stay on for a while, but when she got pregnant, she retired, as they used to call it, although forcibly retired. I'm not sure how else to put it. But from what I understand, she wanted to be a mother and she did want to actually focus on that. But what could have been if she'd been allowed to stay on and continue with science, given her brilliant career up to that point? Brilliant, but is it well known? No, not well known at all. She's a global pioneer of radio astronomy. I mean, who knows that? It's... And there's a Ruby Payne Scott prize at the Academy of Science for certain achievements. Yes, absolutely. So in certain circles, I think it's reasonably well known within the field of radio astronomy. There's been a biography of her recently. But beyond those little circles, I think people would be very surprised to know, particularly in a field like that, that seems you'd think, oh, that only men would do things like that in that period. But uh, Ruby was extraordinary. Talking about only men, one of the funniest lines in your book is about botany and how it's suitable only for women, not men, surely, playing with flowers. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the other things I tried to convey in the book is that now we have this sense that science was always a very manly thing and only men did it. But there's all of these uh, currents in the 19th century about botany in particular as a feminine thing, as a flower collecting and, and something that only women did. And men had to be encouraged to go into this field because they didn't want to be seen as effeminate or their manhood challenged by being associated with botany. Well, one of the reasons I think this book is valuable, taking to the field, in other words, getting on with it, is that none of this is preordained for anyone's career. You don't know what you're going to do, and as we're broadcasting the science show, schoolgirls having won prizes, looking at the whole of science, and what do, you, what do you choose, where do you go? It's somewhat intimidating, but you just do the next thing. And if you know the history of individuals, does it help? Does it, if you think that it's always been a terrible struggle, then it puts you right off? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was not just write about the more famous women, the ones who were more successful, but just the ordinary ones, the ones who just went, oh, I'm interested in science, I think I might do that. 
and actually just show it's that's possible for women even in these earlier periods. I think that focusing on just the Nobel Prize winners and all of those can be a bit intimidating for people because not everyone can have that kind of career. But there's lots of people who do science. And it's also about the idea that, yes, you can just create a path for yourself and it's not that scary. No, we don't do sports simply to be in the Olympics, do we? Yes, that's precisely it. And I do worry, particularly in the contemporary context, about the ways that people talk about science and science for girls in particular, that it's making it seem really hard rather than making it seem possible. Yeah. Where we're sitting, of course, you know, is in Wollongong. Last week we broadcast something that was led, actually, by your Vice-Chancellor, Trish Davidson, who... Professor of Nursing, and she was leading a tribute to Justin Yerbury, who has been doing work on motor neurone disease, and he himself is paralysed. And the thing that struck me as I listened is how many women were essential in the process of helping him on his way, doing the fundamental research. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there needs to be a greater understanding of science as a collaborative kind of exercise. It's not just the head of the lab who usually gets all the glory and is the one who's named. There's a whole lab, a whole team of people usually behind the most important research these days. And we should actually understand that it's a team effort and it's a collaborative kind of enterprise. Jane Carey at the University of Wollongong. Her book, Taking to the Field, is surprising and encouraging, published by Monash.